Uh, this is our third lesson on Genesis. Hopefully you've been here for the previous two. The first one we heard an hour-long video by Dr. Al Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, our flagship seminary in our convention. And then last week, uh, last week? Yes, last week we started in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to continue that tonight, and we'll just see how far we get. But let's read it again. And I've titled it, God the Father Almighty, Maker of Heaven and Earth. And if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, of course you know that is the first part of the Apostles' Creed. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be, light, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Folks, it needs to be said very clearly that Genesis chapter 1 is where the Christian worldview begins. Christians have differed on exactly how God did everything described in the creation account. But no Christian should ever deny that God did it. Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 1 that when we reject God's truth, what do we end up doing? We end up worshiping things in creation and the works of our hands. We become idolaters. And that's exactly what happens when we deny God's truth. Now, I want us to spend a moment in review from last week. I won't cover everything that we said last week. There'd be no point in doing that again. We wouldn't get to tonight's topic. But just a brief review, let's, let's pause for a moment and understand what we said last week about the theological significance of these verses. Now remember, these were words that would have been first heard by Moses' audience, by Hebrews. And these were words that they needed to hear because they were living in the midst of other peoples, many of whom were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And in the minds of these other peoples, your God could only protect you within the boundaries of your own country. We, we see in the Old Testament how Jonah, by, by getting on that boat and paying the fare and leaving, he thought he could get away from God. And he got out on the sea, and guess who he met? He met God. He couldn't get away from God. What Israel is being told here is that her God is the only God. He is the true and the living God. And he is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He's sovereign over everything. And that means that his power is not limited. He is the ruler over everything that is. The God who made everything is Israel's God and he is more than sufficient to look after her. She need not fear the other gods of the nation. She need not question whether God can supply her needs. And by the way, that's a good word to us today, is it not? We need not worry about God's ability or God's sufficiency. He is more than able. After all, who is he? He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. Likewise, Israel is being warned as we are that we dare not worship anything else in all of creation. We are to worship the creator, not the creation. The creation account also says volumes about how God accomplishes his work. He does so through what? What did we say last week? What do we see God? How do we see God creating everything here? Through his powerful word, yes. Over and over again in the creation account, God says it and it is so. If he says it, it is done. 
And therefore the God who is going to give them his commandments and his laws is the God who made everything by his word. And you know what that means? That means that his word is not to be taken lightly. It also means his promises are not to be taken lightly. If God created the heavens and the earth by his word, then God can certainly keep his promises. Again, if God says it, it is done. He can be depended upon. And James reminds us in James chapter 1 that as every good and perfect gift comes down from above, there's no shifting shadows in him. Uh, God is not one way one day and he changes his mind and he's something else or someone else the next day. God can be depended upon. Now, the word Genesis, as we talked about last week, came into English by way of Latin from the Greek. The word has a range of meanings, meaning origin, source, beginning, also begetting. The Hebrew word Bereshith Bereshith is translated in the beginning. Genesis is a book of origins. It begins the narrative of the entire redemptive story in the Bible. And it helps make sense of everything else that follows. Most of the the themes and and, and the, the big picture in the story of redemption, many of the doctrines in the rest of the Bible come to light right here in the first book of the Bible. The book of Genesis. Genesis presents primeval history. Somebody last week commented afterwards they'd never heard that word primeval. Primeval history just simply refers to the history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is primeval history. And then Genesis 12 to 50 outlines for us patriarchal history. So you have primeval history, patriarchal history. That's that's perhaps the biggest division, the, the most broad outline you could write down for the book of Genesis. Right away, the opening verses of Genesis introduce us to the Creator. He's the main character of the book as he is of all Scripture. All through Genesis 1, we read God, Elohim, God, God, over and over again. God is the grammatical subject of the first sentence. And God said. And that's the recurring theme all the way down through verse 3 of chapter 2. Showing us that God is the main character and the main actor. And that means that the creation account is theocentric. It's not man-centered. It's centered on God and what He does. The creation account right away is intended to bring the focus to God as the only one who is worthy of worship and service. God is magnified through the created order. Created is the Hebrew word bara. It's always in the Old Testament with God as the subject and the word stresses God's sovereignty and God's power. It doesn't always refer to creation ex nihilo out of nothing but it always does have God as the subject. When man makes something Other Hebrew words are used. As I mentioned to you last week, if you hold to theistic evolution, you are going to have to appeal to something other than the Scripture. Now, during the the past two lessons that we covered... We looked at the various ways Genesis 1-1 and following has been interpreted. What do we say first of all? The ways to interpret the days. 
Six literal 24-hour days. Dr. Alan Ross says that while yom can mean a period of time like the day or the days of the judges, meaning an elongated period of time, Dr. Ross says that when yom has the number in front of it, first day, second day, third day, so forth and so on, Dr. Ross said it always refers to a literal 24-hour day. Now, I also mentioned to you last week that I personally believe that this is what the Bible is teaching, which means that the Bible teaches a relatively young earth, contrary to what evolutionists say. Evolutionists say that the earth is, a, is roughly 4.5 billion years old. Billion with the B. Universe around... 13, 13.5 billion years, the earth about 4.5. That's what evolution teaches. Now again, well-meaning Christians throughout the ages have disagreed on the age of the earth. And folks, you can find some heavy hitters on all sides of that equation. But all biblically faithful Christians have affirmed that God is in fact the creator. Six literal 24-hour days. Secondly would be the Dage A theory. That is that, that each day was actually a very long period of time which corresponds to the different geological ages. Uh, again, I mentioned Dr. Alan Ross's words on, on, on this above, that when Yom is preceded by a number, it consistently, all through the Old Testament, refers not to an age, but to a literal day. Then, very popular in some evangelical circles, we've got a few people in the church, I know, who hold to the gap theory that means between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap of possibly millions and millions of years that existed. What people often believe in conjunction with the gap theory is that between verse 1 and verse 2, something sinister happened. And what do they say happened there? The fall of Satan. You have God making the heavens and the earth. And the next thing we read in verse 2 is that the creation God made was without form and void. So something happened, they say. And again, they go on to say what that something is, is the fall of Satan. Satan fell to the earth, messed things up. And so what you have beginning in verse 3 is the beginning of a second creation account. Now, first of all, this is not what the text says. It's not a natural reading of the text. But beyond that, you would have to conclude that bloodshed and death and destruction happened before the fall. The fall happened when? Genesis 3. And so I can't accept the gap theory Theologically, because Romans 5 tells us that sin and death and destruction came as a result of Adam's sin. Now, Dr. James Allman out of Dallas Theological Seminary, I went online listening to one of his lectures, and who did I see sitting in the classroom? Steve, raise your hand. There was Steve Patterson in the classroom. Dr. James Allman says, and by the way, he also denies the gap theory, that what we have here in verses 1 to 3 is nothing more than typical Hebrew narrative where you have an opening topic sentence that gives the big picture summary. Then you have the next statement, an opening statement showing the initial condition of things. And then the next line, the third line, is what begins to move the narrative along. So James Allman says, that's, that's what you have here. Typical 
Hebrew narrative. I agree fully with his assessment on that. That instead of a gap theory type order of things, we just have typical Hebrew narrative. Now, a fourth thing is the framework theory. What's being used here is, they say what's being used here in Genesis 1 is nothing more than a literary device of using days to describe a period of time that we should not even try to define the time involved. And along with that, sort of similar to that, is the literary view that goes on to say Genesis 1 to 11 is nothing more than a creation myth. We can add to that the analogical view. What's being described here is God's work days, not our work days, not days corresponding to us in any way, but God's work days. And then I, I learned one more this week uh, from Dr. Ligon Duncan, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He adds to that the revelatory view. And what's being described here, he says, is that across seven days, God was revealing to Moses what God did in creating the world. In other words, the seven days refers to the days of revelation, the days of Moses receiving the revelation, not to creation days at all. Well, again, I personally, I go back to what was presented first. The very first thing, the, the six literal 24-hour days. That's the natural reading of the text, and I think that is the view that encounters the fewest problems. The fewest problems biblically from doing your exegetical study, the fewest problems theologically. Now, wh what we see in, in Genesis 1 is we see a beautiful arrangement in the creation account. A beautiful arrangement. The six days of creation are perfectly divided so that the first days describe the forming of the earth and the last three days, the filling of the earth. Perfect arrangement and symmetry, forming and filling. And along with this beautiful arrangement, there is correspondence. In other words, day four corresponds to day one, day five to day two, day six to day three. On day one, the light was created. On the corresponding day four, there came the sun and the moon to rule the light. On day two, God created the expanse that he called the sky separating the waters above from the waters below. I take that to mean the clouds with their waters from all the waters on the earth. And on the parallel day, day five, God filled the sky and the waters with fowl and fish. On day three, God separated the water and dry land and created vegetation. On the matching day six, God filled the land with animal life and he created man to rule over it all. And so, on top of perfect arrangement, there is correspondence. Now, folks, this is history in the making. What we have in Hebrews 1 is not Hebrew poetry. The form of the Hebrew here is not poetry. It's prose. What we have here is history in the making. Now, granted, it's very brief. It's only a page long. But it's not poetry. There's also an apologetic nature to the, to the account here. Apologetics, what? Giving a reasoned defense for our faith. In other words, each day of creation attacks one of the gods 
of the pagans. Remember about later on in the book of Exodus, the Egyptian plagues? Are those plagues arbitrary? No. Remember, each one of those plagues that God brought on Pharaoh and the Egyptians was a direct account on one of the Egyptian gods. Okay, the days of creation are much like that. Because the pagans had gods of light, gods of night, a god of the sea or gods of the sea, gods of the sky, gods of the heavenly bodies, so forth and so on. Some pagans even assigned divinity to humans. And so the creation account shows that it is the true and the living God who made the heavenly bodies, the seas, the land, the animals, and all that is, and humans. As the maker of heaven and earth, God is the creator of all and he's sovereign over all. And that means nothing in creation is to be worshipped. There's no other God behind the moon. There's not a moon God or a sun God. There's only Elohim, the God of the Bible. And that means only he is to be worshipped. As we said before, God creates simply by his powerful word. We come to the New Testament. And, and we see Jesus doing things too. Like remember when he was asleep in the boat and they were sure they were going to die. And he got up and he commanded the, the winds and the waves to be still. And what happened? They calmed down. And the disciples looked at him and said, who is this man? He goes to the tomb of Lazarus. Dead four days. They said, Lord, don't you know by now he's stinking? When Jesus told them to take the rock away, they took the rock away, the stone away, and Jesus called the dead forth simply by his word. In fact, the Gospel of John's interesting in that because the word used for miracles in the Gospel of John, Simeon, the, the miracles we see there are Things that they believe that only God could do. And here is Jesus doing things that only God can do. And so if Jesus is doing things that only God can do, then who must he be? He must be God. His powerful word. Now, we see also here the pronouncement of good and very good that is repeated. Uh, in Genesis 1, we see a perfect world. But folks, as we look at our world today, we do not see a perfect world. What happened? Sin. The fall. Did the fall only impact humans? No. What's Paul say, for instance, in Romans chapter 8? That the whole creation is now groaning. We've got natural disasters that happen, like Hurricane Florence. Okay? Now, when man experiences the consummation of his salvation that Revelation 21, 22 speaks of, guess what? There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so everything bad in the world that we see today is going to be done away with. But in Genesis 1, we see that everything is still good at this point because sin has not entered the picture yet. Also, we see order in the creation account. God makes everything in an orderly manner. He's not a God of chaos and disorder. 
One person wrote, the chances against such an ordered cosmic machine just happening are overwhelming. If you take 10 pennies, number them 1 to 10, put them in your pocket, then put your hand back in your pocket, your chances of pulling out the number 1 penny would be 1 in 10. You place number 1 penny back in your pocket, mix them up, the chances of pulling out the number 2 would be 1 in 100. You repeat the above, chances of then pulling out penny number 3 would be 1 in a thousand to do so over and over again until you get to penny number 10 having pulled them all out in perfect sequence the odds would be one in 10 billion of that happening noting the order and the design of the universe Johann Kepler the father of modern astronomy said The undevout astronomer, the unbelieving astronomer is mad. He's mad. He's crazy. Now, I said to you in our first session, I was not going to try to talk like a scientist because I'm not one. It tickles me sometimes to hear pastors as they're going through Genesis 1. They're talking like they're PhDs in science and physics and all that. So I'm not going to do that. But, but let me just say that the tilt of the earth, 23 degrees, if it were not exactly that, if it were off just a little, we would lose our seasons. We would lose life itself. Continents of ice would, would pile up. If we were just a little closer to the sun, the earth would be burned up. If the moon were closer, tides would overwhelm the continents. Everything is precisely in place. No wonder that the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And what we see is God creating a perfect environment for man to arrive into. What's that say? What's that say about God's care for us? Pretty profound, isn't it? God did not create Adam and Eve until everything was in place and everything was ready. He didn't put Adam and Eve into a situation where there would be frustration and a lack of anything that they needed for survival. Now, we talked last week about each of the days of creation. And how he said, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. Evolutionists, of course, say that we all go back to a common life form. Everything comes out of that common life. Genesis 1 is not teaching that. God created everything according to its kind. Now, we come to day 6 to the creation of man. And I want you to notice how the narrative slows down it's almost in slow motion and the narrative also changes from the third person to the first person plural God said let us now we know from reading the Old Testament and the New Testament together that this can only be a reference to the Trinity because you come to Colossians 1 and you come to Hebrews 1 and it tells us that at creation the Father was there speaking but who was the agent of creation? Jesus. And then Genesis 1-2 tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so at creation we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some have tried to say when it says let us, perhaps he's referring, perhaps God's speaking to angels. But this can't be so because the Bible never says that angels were created in the image of God. And he says let us make man in our image. He couldn't have been talking to the angels. Now Dr. Kent Hughes writes of man created in the image of God. Listen to this closely. He says, so consider this, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years beyond the plane of the Milky Way, Though you could slow to examine the host of of hot young 
young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the protostars poised to burst, burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and the wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The child once was not. Now, as a created soul, he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall still live. End of quote. I like that. Now folks, after the flood, when God renewed the covenant with Noah, what did he say about those who shed the blood of another human being and murdered them? What did God say? What did God institute? He instituted the death penalty, right? That if you shed a person's blood, you would forfeit your life. And, and in his words to Noah, what did he base that on? Why did he put such a severe penalty on murdering a, another human being? What was it based on? Exactly. Because the person that you've murdered was created in the image of God. And that's the reason God gave when he told Noah... That man shall forfeit his life if he takes somebody's life. Folks, that's how serious God takes human life. Now think about it. We live in a society where we've been told that it is perfectly fine and dandy that about 4,000 babies per day are killed inside of their mother's womb. Such a careless and cavalier attitude to human life. But is that what God says? No. Let me tell you something else. Every single human being that you and I meet are deserving of respect and dignity and love because they're created in the image of God. Even those you may not like are created in the image of God. James says in James chapter 3 that we praise God with our tongue and then we turn around and we curse and gossip about people who are made in the image of God. James is saying we should not even use our tongues to run somebody down because that is a person created in the image of God. He's not talking about just not taking their life, not even talking against them, uh, slandering them, gossiping them, cursing them in some way because they're made in the image of God. That doesn't mean you and I like the ways of everybody. But remember, every person you meet on the streets tomorrow, in the classroom, at work, in your home, wherever. Every single person you meet is somebody created in the image of God, deserving of respect and dignity. That's true. Jesus said we're to love love our enemies. Yeah, exactly. Now, what's the image of God say about things in society like racism? Does the image of God 
have any saying on that? Sure it does. That person of a different race, different nationality. Likewise, just like you, is somebody made in the image of God. What about the person with Down syndrome or the person who is deformed or disabled? What did God say to Moses? Remember when Moses said, Lord, I can't go, I can't speak. What did God say to Moses? I made your mouth. Who made the dumb? Who made the lame? God said, I did. I made them. Folks, what I'm saying is be very careful what you say about people, how you treat people, what you do to them, because again, every person is made in the image of God. The fall of man did not erase the image of God. It marred it. It marred it, but it didn't erase it. Now, there were some neo-Orthodox theologians of the past who said that the image was lost in the fall. Again, that's not true, though. I go back once again to God's words to Noah. After the fall, after the flood, God told Noah... If somebody sheds a man's blood, you you kill them because they've shed blood of somebody made in the image of God. The image of God, God didn't consider it erased after the fall. It's still there. Again, marred, but it's still there. How about sexism? Again, who's made in the image of God? Adam and Eve both. We see in the Bible that men and women both are, are created equal in the image of God. Different roles. Our society doesn't often recognize it. There's, there's different roles, different functions. But equal in creation. Both men and women are made in the image of God. By the way, I like what Dr. Ligon Duncan, again, president of Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, says here. Homosexuality is a denial of humanity. Not only a denial of marriage, but a denial of humanity because God made us male and female to procreate, to multiply and fill the earth. So homosexuality is a denial of of humanity in that sense. You hear people like anthropologists talk about the human animal. No, we're not like the animal. We're not the human animal. We're distinct from them. So, what does the image of God refer to? What's it refer to? Let me, let me just run through some ideas on this. We know that when we talk about the image of God in man, man is to reflect God on the earth. We, we are image bearers. We're image bearers. And God has incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Communicable those that he shares with us. He possesses those communicable attributes perfectly. We do not. He does. We don't. But nonetheless, God is holy. So as an image bearer, what are we to be? If God's holy, what are we to be? We're to be holy. God loves, so what are we to do? We're to love. We're to rule. We're to be vice regents with God. That's involved in, in being created in the image of God. He has given us a very important stewardship. We are to carry out God's attributes. Likewise, as we rule, we're to be holy and just and righteous and caring as we carry out our stewardship of having dominion. God is intelligent. He's omniscient, in fact. Man is intelligent. He's not omniscient, of course, but he's intelligent. So that's part of the image of God in man. God is righteous and moral. In our dominion, we're to be righteous and moral. God is rational. 
We're rational. We think. We reason. Animals act with instinct. But man is rational. God communicates. So does man. Man speaks. He communicates in ways that the animals cannot. Again, just all these different ways of what it means to be created in the image of God. God enjoys relationships, a relationship within the Trinity and with man. We're created in the image of God to be, to be what? Relational, to have community. Also, God is spirit. Man has a spirit that will live forever. That's not said of any other thing in creation, but it was said of man. Those are just some of the ways, some of the things it means to be created in the image of God. Let me also say something about man having dominion. As we think about ruling as God's vice regents and bearing his image, it ought to be unthinkable to us to ever think about abusing the creation, abusing animals or abusing other people. We are caretakers. Now, we're not tree huggers who worship the environment. There's there's no place for that. But nonetheless, we of all people as Christians ought to care about God's creation. We ought not want to abuse things and, 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 and damage things. Occasionally you 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 read in the news about what somebody has done. To an animal, just atrocious things to an animal. And you think, how could anybody do something like that? That's an animal's God's creation. Again, we're to be caretakers, responsible stewards over everything. Again, I I do not endorse at all what some of these radical environmentalists do. I'm not talking about that at all. But I am just talking about a reasonable level, being a caretaker, a good steward of God's creation. That's what's involved in having dominion. God gave man dominion to be a vice regent with him. And in everything that we do, we are to be an image bearer, an image bearer of God. Now, as we come near the end of chapter 1, we, we notice beginning in verse 29. I want you to notice that before the fall, man and beast alike were what? What were they given to eat? Vegetarians. Now, after the fall, we see God also given an okay of consuming animals. In the Old Testament, he gave regulations about what kind of animals they could eat, what they couldn't. That was under the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, it was broadened out. God declared all things clean. Remember that vision that, that Simon Peter had in the book of Acts? about the animals and the sheep, that that vision, that sheep being let down, and in it were all sorts of animals, some clean and some unclean, and and Peter was told, rise and eat. And he said, not so, Lord. There's unclean animals in that. And God said, "Don't, don't call unclean what I've made clean. And the Bible says there in Acts, so God declared all foods clean. Can somebody today be a vegetarian if they choose? Certainly. Must we be vegetarians as as PETA would try to dictate? No. By the way, I saw a window sticker on the back of a guy's pickup. PETA. You know what uh, on that sticker what it stood for? People eating tasty animals. (laughs) Boy, a, a, a ribeye, good ribeye cooked just right. That's good eating, isn't it? But again, folks, let me say that I assume in heaven we will once again 
be vegetarians and eat grains, fruits, vegetables. Why? Why do I say that? Because there will not be bloodshed. Well, what's some lessons as we wrap up this session? Lesson number one, I hope you are writing these down. Lesson number one, God is a God of order and beauty. God is a God of order and beauty. Lesson number one. I'm going to give you five lessons, okay? Lesson number one, God is a God of order and beauty. Number two, God is a God of purpose. God is a God of purpose. Number three, man is unique and special in all of God's creation. Man is unique and special in all of God's creation. It is only said of man that he was made male and female in the image of God. That statement is not said of anything else. So man is unique and special in all of God's creation. Number four, all men are deserving of a level of dignity and respect simply by virtue of being created in the Amajo Dei. And then lastly, man is to be a steward of God's creation serving as God's vice regents. Okay? The fourth one is all men are deserving of a level of dignity and respect simply by virtue of being created in the Imago Dei. I M A G O D E I, Imago Dei, the image of God. And then again, fifth, man is to be a steward of God's creation serving as God's vice regents. Now, I mentioned James Allman a moment ago uh, and his course on Genesis. Since we've got somebody in here who went through that course with James Allman, Steve, do you have anything to add? Boy, that's a loaded question, isn't it? Yes. You can go YouTube. You can YouTube James Allman, A-L-L-M-A-N, on YouTube, James Allman, class on Genesis from Dallas Theological Seminary. And his course is right there online. Okay, let's, uh, let's take our prayer guides out.